and welcome to another episode of the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I'm joined by my co-host Lee. Hello. And uh, we're, we're throwing you in the deep end again. <laughs> you, you seem to be getting the tough ones. I have. <laughs> it, it, it was Fat Girl a couple of weeks ago and now uh, welcome to the world of Bergman. Yeah, I don't think I've seen a Bergman film before. Yeah, well, uh, we are, without further ado, we are talking about his, uh, his arguably his masterpiece, uh, Fanny and Alexander. Hmm, 1982. Yes, and uh, I'll say, like, for the sake of making it kind of easier and, you know, more simple for the episode, uh, we're just going to concentrate on the theatrical version of Fanny and Alexander, um, you know, with Criterion, they have put out the five and a half hour long uh, television version, but we're just going to... Keep it simple and concise with theatrical version only. Mm, yes. Yeah. Um, although in saying that, before we get into it, I did struggle a lot with plot jumps and time jumps, which yes. I can only put down to the fact that it is a film that's been, um, uh, yeah, a TV show that's been minimised into a film. Yeah, I did see a quote from Bergman himself saying that, like, um, to initially cut it down, he essentially had to cut out all, like, the muscle and the vein. Like, you know, he was very overdramatic with it, like, saying that, you know, he had, they killed my baby. Oh, <laughs> but, okay. But it's also, like, uh, I, I, was, I was okay with just doing the, looking at the theatrical version uh, when I saw Mark Commode, actually, uh, the UK film critic, review it and sort of say, like, yes, there is this five-and-a-half-hour version out there that everyone, like, you know, Bergman completists should see, but uh, he still considers uh, Fanny and Alexander theatrical version to be an absolute masterpiece, and like that's really all you need. Like if if you're if you're just kind of passing through, I yeah. Guess. If if you're not wanting to spend a whole a whole season or a whole year with yeah. these characters, I guess. So. Yeah. So so it's how long is the television? I think it's five hours twenty. Yeah. Okay. And and the theatrical is three hours and nine minutes. Yeah, something like that. Yes. Um, but uh, I'll quickly do the plot synopsis from Criterion. Uh, Through the eyes of ten-year-old Alexander, we witness the delights and conflicts of the Ekdal family, a sprawling bourgeois clan in the turn of the century in turn of the century Sweden. Ingmar Bergman intended Fanny and Alexander as his swan song and its legendary director's warmest and most autobiographical film, a four-time Academy Award-winning triumph that combines his trademark melancholy and emotional intensity with immense joy and sensuality. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that, again, like, uh, first time in a while that plot synopsis doesn't actually tell you the plot, really. No, it's more accolades. <laughs> yeah, and, um... I was very interested to see uh, how you, like, just, before we even get into the nitty-gritty of it, like, what's your initial reaction? Like, you were saying you've never seen a Bergman. No. I loved, loved, loved the world. And I can tell that there was a lot of thought put into the design, the costumes, the um, landscape. Yeah, he must have had historians or... Um, a lot of support with that because it was very beautiful Mm. Um, and combined with later on in the film where it's so stark and lacks colour it was that was fabulous to watch however I did struggle a lot with keeping track of who was who 
and who was whose wife and husband and daughter mm. and it was about it took me until probably the second act to work out who Fanny was. Yeah, Fanny well apparently that's a big thing with the theatrical version where Fanny isn't even really introduced until about the hour, an hour in. Yeah. So it wasn't like her just name me. Is mentioned, her name's mentioned like once. I think yeah. it's actually the first line when Alexander wakes up and is looking for everybody. Yeah, but, but it's not hmm. associated to a person, so you don't no. really know who that is. So And then and then for the longest time she's just one of the kids and yeah. you don't know if it's sister or cousin or it she's just yeah. Yeah, and I found that the kids were always it was rarely Alexander and Fanny. It, you know, there were moments where, okay, is this their house? Is that their mum? Hang on, there's another little girl there. Whose other children are these? I guess, like, yeah, if I watched the um, TV version, it might have been a bit clearer, but I spent a lot of it trying to work I, out who everyone yeah. was. I don't know if it would necessarily be clearer. And again, this is me now speculating on something mm. I haven't actually watched. Um, but to me, I got the sense with it, it, was, it reminded me a lot of, say, something like, the Godfather, where just all of a sudden you're plonked into yes. a giant family gathering for about 40 minutes, and mm. it takes you a while to kind of get your bearings and understand who who is who and what the dynamics here. You don't even, and even that, even in that film, you don't leave it going, I have a clear understanding of who everyone is. You, yeah. You're still a little bit shaky, and that's kind of what I, the sense I got with this. It's, it's less so about introducing you to specific characters and like you said it's introducing you to a world yeah absolutely absolutely and I just sort of went with it but I think I messaged you about an hour in and I'm like oh this is getting interesting because I reckon that first act you are you're just lost you're enjoying it it's mm. enjoyable but where is this going we haven't really even spent that much time with Alexander in act one we got introduced to him we see a couple of snippets of him but you know, in the back of my mind, the t- the title's there, and that's mm. I'm, I'm like so grasping at that, going, all right, but why is this important to these two characters? Where are we going? And then all of a sudden, the second act kicks in. You're like, ah, I get it now. I see what's happening here, and why yeah. we spent so much time in the first act looking at the lavishness of it all, and yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and, and I'm guessing that point where you sent me a text message was uh, when all of a sudden ghosts come into play. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it was interesting because I was, yeah, when he has that moment with the statue in the very first scene. Yes. Yes. Like, I love, that's like, that's burned into my brain forever, that image. Yeah. There's so many moments through the film where I'm, is it his reality? Is it? You know, what does this mean? What does it symbolise? And, yeah, I'm still working my brain around it, let's yeah. put it that way. Well, well, my, my read on that is it's kind of twofold, where it is kind of... Um, it's almost a little bit of having your cake and eating it too, where, where it could either be unreliable narrative because it's, ch- it's from the perspective of a child looking back, essentially, like, you know, a, a childhood story because, you know, this is semi-autobiographical in the 80s, looking back at you know, childhood long ago. Um, so you could frame it in that way of, oh, it, it's just because because our protagonist is a child, he, it, it's an unreliable narr- narrator, and so there's flights of fancy and, you know, misremembered items. Or the the one that I, I more prefer is the, by having that as our opening scene of Alexander waking up and wandering around this giant house and, like, calling out for his mother, his sister, his grandmother, all the family, and, like, I'm like, this is like Home Alone all of a sudden. Like, where is everybody? <laughs> um, 
and then the statue kind of comes alive and starts calling to him. And you're like, oh, we're in a fairy tale. Yeah. That's, and and then, like, the scene just cuts and ends, and so you, you almost can theorize, like, oh, that was just a dream he was having or something. Mm. But by having that as the initial scene in the film, it, he's setting you up instantly for, this is not a standard realistic narrative. We're, we're not in reality here. We're, we're in, there's some magical realism. We're, we're in a fairy tale. Mm. And then, you know, it... it by the time it gets into like halfway through the second act, you're all of a sudden like, oh, we are 100% in a fairy tale here. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. The, the th- yeah, we'll get to the third act, but the third act with the, yeah, that got very, with the puppets and everything, very fairy tale. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I'm, I am even even meaning more so like the, you know, the evil stepfather yeah. and like the wicked, wicked aunt and stuff. Like, you know, it, it's very, it, yeah, like... I, I wrote the first thing I wrote down like when all of that started to happen was holy shit but and I ended up not I, I went into this one not trying to read anything about it beforehand mm. I, I kind of did the reading afterwards and it's like oh shit it's Bergman doing Dickens like oh. he's essentially doing like Oliver Twist or David Copperfield it's the story of in the year in the life of these kids and it's like what they go through in their change of you know scene yeah it, it's like Dickens meets Hans Christian Andersen to some degree. Very, very Hans Christian Andersen. Yeah, Dickens. Yeah, I see that now. Absolutely. Mm. And then when I was doing the research, it turns out that's what he was going for. He was heavily inspired by Dickens for this writing this. So, oh, It's, yeah, I kind of wish I had done um, research beforehand because I think I felt like I spent so much um, time grasping. And I haven't done any research, so everything's just my reaction. But, mm-hmm. yeah. I, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that's good. You mentioned that it's semi-biographical. Like, what do you mean? Uh, yeah, so it's uh, Bergman doing a, like, it, well, it's considered his most autobiographical film where it's like he, looking back at a time. I mean, he wasn't born in 1907. He was born, I think, 1918. So it's like, you know, maybe we're looking at maybe 10, 15 years beyond where this film was initially set. But uh, him coming from a mostly, you know, a, a well-to-do kind of family and things, and then I think having the perspective of a child who is a dreamer and wanting to tell stories and things and having that kind of oppressed and beaten out of him and, like, the... Yeah, it, it's sort of focusing on memories from his childhood, essentially. Mm. There's that moment where um, Edward the priest, or the bishop... Um, talks to him about lying and truth and all that, but then he says, oh, not to worry, um, creativity, um, creative, I can't remember, I can't remember the exact quote, but creativity um, is what our artists and our writers and all that, even though he's our bad character, like, mm. you can see that's kind of a moment where we get a bit of a insight into Alexander's character and... Yeah, well, it's it's almost essentially hitting us, the audience, over the head with, like, this is who this character is. And then uh, the irony of uh, the bishop even recognising that, yet still being like, but don't worry, I'm going to beat that out of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I recognise that's important, but not for you, because you're my kid now, and I don't, I don't cop to any of that. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, the, the first... Uh, yeah, I was, I was kind of... Going back to that first act, the yeah. whole the, the the giant Swedish Christmas essentially, oh, where it is just kind of gorgeous, throwing you into this world. Like it is lavish and amazing. Yeah. The costumes, Decadent. the set design, and how it just kind of 
I love, love, love that it, like... I, I think it's maybe just because I'm used to it having seen so many films that it, it it it's a film that doesn't hold your hand. It's like, no, just just get, go. Have, just look at this world and just go for it. And how we, we have the whole family evening and then we kind of splinter off and have our little moments with, you know, the, the, main, the key uncles and things like that before then. I've got to yeah. say, I love, love, love Gustav and Alma. I oh, yes. loved them. They were great. Is it Gustav who's on the stairs and he's like, I'm going to show you some fireworks, kids, and he goes up and down and up and down and he farts? No, that was, um, oh, God, I, I want to say Carl something? Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just Carl. G- Carl, that's who that Is was. Is Carl the because one that dies? No, Carl, uh, oh, the one who died. Yeah, no, the, the one who dies is, um, you know, Fanny and Alexander's father. What's but his name? Uh, I want to say Oscar. Yes, Oscar. Okay. Yes. So this was my biggest Again, this thing. Is, this is the problem. Like we're just kind of thrown in and we're guessing like, you know, yeah, we never... I feel bad because I wrote down names. I'm like, right, this is this person. This is that person. I guess that sort of is that beginning of the film. I'm like, Gustav. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, Gust- you have, Gust- you have Gustav Oscar. and Alma. Gustav is like the philanderer who yes. owns the caf- the restaurants and cafes who, and he and Alma have a kind of an open relationship where she's just like, it's fine if he wants to fuck around. It just means I'm not bothered with it. Oh, she's great. <laughs> Which is wonderful. I love her. And then you've got uh, Carl and Lydia. And Carl is the one who has that wonderful scene where he's showing the kids fireworks by like lighting his <laughs> bark on the stairs. Uh, which, which at that point, like... We're having this lavish Christmas dinner and it's like there's fart jokes in there and there's oh. sex. And I'm just like, this is like watching a Fellini film, not a Bergman film. There's so much whimsy and lightheartedness. Yeah. I'm not used to this from Bergman. What the fuck's going on? Where's all the <laughs> sadness and like existential crisis stuff? Um, but then Carl is, the, they're the family where it's like the money issues. And they kind of have their little argument. Yeah, see, th- this is where I got lost. And probably if I... Again, watch the TV series. I might have more time with the characters. I might recall them a bit better. But um, but like you said, I like how it's not like we're setting up a film. It's like you've been plopped in on this mm-hmm. particular day, in this particular moment, with this particular family, and they're not holding your hand. You just go with it. And, um, yeah, that, that moment on the stairs, I was thinking farts are funny in every language and at every time. Oh, 100%. And... <laughs> wonderful um yeah no absolutely and then it's it's that like i think by throwing us into just a a i mean it's not an average day because it is a christmas and it's a big holiday thing but by doing it in a way where it's like here is a big celebration a big like a memory essentially like it Mm. is that is a that it's a key memory for kids is having a big family christmas with everyone around and by doing that as well, Bergman's, like, showing us the everyone that they're going to miss. All the idiosyncrasies, mm. everything that made that family that family. So that then, and that's why we linger with it for so long. That's And, you know, we're there for an hour, hour 20, before then that's taken away from Fanny and Alexander. And by giving us that amount of time with it, we're able to be like, oh, we, we know why they want to go back. We know what they're missing. We've spent so much time with this family. We get it. Mm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and that was when that moment hit in the movie, that's when I messaged you. I'm like, oh, I see now. I see now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, just before you move on from that, like, whole first act thing, I, the thing that broke my brain was, uh, Maj, who is, uh, the re- frizzy redhead, uh, housekeeper with the limp who, uh, is having the affair with, uh, Gustav. Yep. Um, I saw on the cast list that it broke my brain. I'm like, it's Pranilla August is the actress. And you're Who's, like, who the fuck is yeah, that? Right? Who the fuck is that? She's Shmi Skywalker. She's, she's Anakin's mother in Phantom Menace. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah! I just, I just remember that because it's like the dumbest name ever, Shmi Skywalker. <laughs> and is, <laughs> but, is um, the grandmother the old lady in Ever After? Ooh, she might be, actually. Let me just quickly click on that. But, um, yeah, the, I mean, now's as good a time as any to say that the, this cast is absolutely stacked with Bergman regulars. Like, um, playing Idzak, we have um gentleman from uh, Scenes from Marriage. I'm sorry, I'm terrible at names, especially when they're Swedish. It's, uh-uh. you know. <laughs> uh, no, it was not the Lee from Ever yeah. After. Looks Ba-bow. like her, though. Ba-bow. That's fine. Hmm. But, um, yeah, it, it's, it is that thing of like, yeah, like I said, we spend so much time initially, so we get to know this family before it's then Oliver Twisted or, <laughs> you know, David Copperfield away from them. And there's a moment in that first act when the children go to bed and there's that story um, the little boy does with his projection and the white yeah. ghost. Yes. And I wish I paid more attention to it because it's clearly being... With the father later on, he's in his white suit. Well, I think it's also, it's it's working twofold, where it's it's establishing that uh, Alexander has a vivid imagination and a lust for storytelling and making things up. And, you know, if it can scare people or elicit reaction, all the better, which kind of explains why he's a kind of facsimile for Bergman in that way. Um, and then... I think that's why after his father dies, we, he he sees him as that white ghost because it's able it's it's him being able to put it into terms that he can understand from the stories that he knows and can tell. That yeah. So that's why the father is being projected as that. And then you had later on in the film have the the inverse of that when you have Edvard showing up dressed all in black, like you know the as his ghost at the end. I thought he had the shining. No, oh, he, he got the shin in. <laughs> he's got the shin in. No, he's it, just... It kind of does, to some degree, because then, like, you know, does he kill... Does he force her to knock over the lamp with his, mm. t- like, with his mind powers later? Well, yeah. Mm. <laughs> we'll get to that, but... Yeah. But, yeah, when when um, Oscar dies, were you just like, uh, yeah, obviously it's like, okay, now... It sounds mean to say something has happened. <laughs> But it's like we actually have some forward momentum happening yes. here with the plot. That's pretty much exact. Yeah, something's happened now. Um, but yeah, like you said before, it's important for all that beginning so that we know what they've lost. Hmm. Yeah, but it literally got interesting. D- yeah. <laughs> it's, yes. Mm. And, I, and again, I, I will say, like, you know, listeners, long-time listeners of the podcast will know it took me a long, me and Tom a long, long time to get our heads around Bergman. Um, so it's really okay that you're jumping in with, I, I've seen multiple places this described as his most accessible film. Oh, okay. So that's, so that's something. <laughs> yeah. And I guess for me, the struggle is um, <clears throat> characters have moments that you feel like are going somewhere. Or you get introduced to characters, but then you might not see them again, or their storyline's not picked up 
it doesn't affect the main storyline at all. It's sort of pockets of... Yeah, and that's mostly in that first act, essentially, I guess, with with the introductions of all the family, because, like you said, they then eventually disappear for long stretches. Yeah. And I I think it is because, like, what, what we've said before, how it's, like, setting up who the family is and what the kids are going to be then losing, but it's also helping establish the world. And, mm. you know, I think by just the... the it doesn't matter that some of, like, you know, all the stuff with um, Carl and Lydia and their money troubles just disappears and is never really relevant again. It's more just giving you a snapshot as to the world that these kids live in mm. and, and the dynamics of what this family is. Because even though, that like, nothing really comes from that scene, you do get the sense of, um, of Helena being the patriarch, like, you know, the grandmother being that patriarch, the one that will lend, lend her kid money, but not... Again, like, not a second time. Like, you know, it's, it's it's establishing the boundaries and the dynamics of the family. Yeah, and I guess as well that he's so... Carl is so upset of his lot, where he is at the moment. And then you're like, you've got no problems, like... No, well, that's it. And it's... <laughs> and it, I, I wonder if I missed a line there or something, whether or not he, he... The reason he's so upset and things is because he looks at the rest of his families, mm. where, where they are. And it, it is that whole sibling rivalry thing of, like, well, fuck, my brother owns a bunch of restaurants and cafes, my other brother th- owns a theatre and is acting and doing what he loves, and now I'm fucking needing money and loans. Like, yeah, Mah. my wife speaks German, doesn't speak Swedish, and she smells. Yo, that's <laughs> it. It's just a, it's a guy having had a lush, elegant party with his family, and then he's drunk and just like, fuck this. Yeah, having a sook. <laughs> Having a sock, essentially. But again, it, it's like, the, it's important and it's in there just to help, you know. Yeah. So we can gleam little pieces about it. But then, yeah, unfortunately, we have Oscar dying and then that's sort of, again, showing, leaning into the whole... That's kind of the first point where we get the vulnerability of Alexander. I was going to say, that scene um, of him going to his father's um, deathbed... Poor kid, he's like, if I'll, it's so, like, they force him into that room where the sputal bucket is and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So harsh. That that whole transition, if you notice from the second when, um, when Alma comes to get them to be like, your father wants to, even before that, when they're in that, uh, the back kitchen room with the, with the housekeepers and they're making the sandwiches and stuff, it's such a low camera. And you realize we are completely in the kid's point of view at this point. Mm. And then as, you know, it's Alma leading them in and it's almost a POV shot of all the relatives there watch, looking at them as they're going in. And it's so, it's, yeah, it's not like a low angle, but it's like physically the camera is only about three feet off the ground. And then, and then we have the weird cutaways where it is just like, for some reason, it's a cutaway of the clock, of the rag, of the spittle bucket. And you're like... Because that's... What he's thi- seeing, yeah. Yeah. And it's so like, oh, God, this yeah. is amazing. <laughs> it is. It's it's very clever. And uh, why do you think he had such a big... Well, obviously, his father's dying, but Fanny is quite confident and can go up and hold his hand and do what she's told, but he struggles so much in that moment. And is he a bit know. more sensitive than her or more... I think it could be more sensitive and it's also maybe more aware of what's going on. And yeah, like she's what, littler. She's littler, but it's also that thing of he was there when his father 
collapsed. Like, and, and it was he he was watching like the impact of watching your father or like any loved one or someone that you're close with, like watching them in the middle of doing something that they love. Like, that's the whole thing, like, and th that's what I loved as well, they kept, like, all the little jabs of, like, Oscar's not a great actor, but he just does it anyway because he loves it. I'm like, oh my god, way to endear. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's witnessing his father do that and then collapse and die, like, doing what, and it's like, it it's his first glimpse of the fragility of life and, like, mm. how it doesn't matter. You could be in the middle of doing your favorite thing in the world and then just have it taken away from you and... It's, I think, coming face-to-face -face with that fragility of life and then, again, common themes with Berkman. <laughs> and <Yeah>. then, <laughs> um, you know, the maybe the cognizance of this means everything's going to change or, or, under, or having the understanding that n from this point on, nothing is going to be the same again. Mm. Yeah. Like, like for not... I mean, even on a base level of, like, for better or worse, he, he, he is thrust into a new situation. I mean, I don't think he realizes it's going to go where it goes, but it is, like, that, well, shit. Everything, like, you know, that we'd seen previous to this was all happy and sunshine and a great family life, and now... And, and as you said, like, the color is slowly drained out of it. The next scene is this big funeral procession where it is almost black and white, almost. Like, and I love... How he's like, fuck, piss, balls, cunt, shit, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> and then Fatty looks at him with his tidiest of smirks. It's so good. Is that and him trying to escape the moment or? Yeah, it's him, I think, trying to escape the moment and also kind of, I, I think it's initially starting as him like cursing the moment um, uh. and kind of just like, you know, as a way of dealing with it as a small kid, he's just like, fuck, shit pissed <laughs> bastard you know just unleashing with it and then when he sees that it's eliciting a reaction from fanny he's just like oh okay like it's not he kind of leans into it as a joke thing because he's like kind of becoming aware of like oh there's other people now and i've got to you know i gotta put on a brave face or do this for her now and it's it's nice i love it's them. Yeah, I love their little relationship where um, she hears the screaming of her mother in the middle of the night and she hops into bed with him and then they yeah. walk. It's awful, but they walk out together and see her crying and it's awful. Her just but wailing over the body That's a great performance. Of, oh, it's insane. And then like how it's perfectly framed with the body and, and it's such a long, long wide shot. Like they're so detached from it and it's, mm. it's haunting and yeah, mm. I... Because we'd gotten like an hour, hour 20 in in this, and I'm just like, there's no screaming yet <laughs> in, in this Berkman movie. No one is crying and screaming, and then, oh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, well, not the same thing, but some of these adults say the most fucked up shit to these kids. Like um, Madge. What's her actual name? Maj. 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 Madge. Um, well, that's M-A-J, Madge. <laughs> oh, come on, Madge. She, like, is pretty much telling Alexander in the first act that she's going to have sex with his uncle or something. But you're well, it's my like, man. Yeah, yeah, you can't come into my bed tonight because um, I'm having a gentleman caller. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I should have written more down, but the, the things this kid listens to throughout this film, I'm like, whoa. But that's why... I love it though so much because then because of people not kind of shying away from stuff in front of him leads him to be such a wonderful smart ass. 
Yeah. Like later. <laughs> he's like a when he's confronting Edward and stuff, he's so cynical and so hard nosed, and I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, speaking of which, then obviously, after the father passes, we have the funeral. Not very long after, I think it's the dinner. Look at the the thing starts jumps yeah, around I mean, so well, much. Like, yeah, but it's... T- time is kind of relative in this. It's it's essentially almost a it's a, it was being presented like a year year and a bit in the in this life. Yeah, and then obviously, mum gets married to Edward, and they all move into his. His Very... castle. <laughs> I guess so. Which I, I love up family. as well. Like, when it's like that um, that establishing shot of like the, the murky brown, disgusting whirlpool river where you find out his previous wife and children killed themselves. <laughs> like, And then it does that pan up to like the castle on the hill. I'm like, this is just like Aqua Teen Hunger Force. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it's like the, the castle up on the hill. This is hilarious. Um, but just quickly with Edward's uh, introduction, it's... You touched on it earlier about how we're first introduced to him as just the bishop, and you don't know anything of their his relationship or burgeoning relationship with Emily, um, Alexander and Fanny's mother, because Alexander doesn't. No, he's just... At- we see a glimpse of him, like, talking to her at the dinner table in her ear, a bit, a little bit too close, and then him, Alexander, kind of sneering, or like, what's this? Mm. I know what's going on here. And then the next minute, yeah... It just and and that's what's great because it it reminds you again we are from the perspective of this kid we are not privy to we're not being shown anything that he wouldn't be privy to so there we go and I think that's where the first act got me because I had in the back of my mind Fanny Fanny and Alexander is the title we haven't been with this character for so long and then when that started to happen I'm like okay here we go yeah you know now Now, I can see now we're into it yeah where we're going and and I, I. it has to be, like, the title Fanny and Alexander, it has to be that Dickens nod with, you know, Oliver Twist, uh, The Life and Times of uh, David Copperfield. Like, having that character name in there, mm. like, letting you know, eventually we're, we're seeing the world from this person's perspective. But again, th- both of those books have other world building, and then we're into our character's world. So that it's he's really kind of aping off that Dickensian style. And later on... Um you know, they go to the house and they meet the his Edward's family and there's that one moment where we get to see why um, Alexander's mum would want to marry Edward and even then they're in the scene. They're asleep yes. and they're in a chair, but they're in the scene, making that scene in a way happen for us, if that makes yes. sense. Yeah, yeah. Like, we don't get a lot of... Uh, their relationship, unless Alexander is present. There might be a few moments, but, yeah, it's mainly when he's around. Yeah, and we get, like, the odd little line of dialogue early on where it's, um, you know, he's been there as a comfort in this time. Like, you know, the mother kind of explaining, like, almost, you know, expositorily to us, like, what that relationship was. But I I just want to say, like, what possibly my favourite moment in the film, and I laughed out loud so hard with it, is um, at the wedding... After it's like I now pronounce you man and wife, and Alexander <laughs> leaves the room and just belly flops onto the table. <laughs> it was I, I laughed a... so hard oh. because it's just the best like ten year old kid like fuck my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's so wonderful. And there's such a weird cut there, and I would imagine that there'd mm. be more footage in the um tv show but the way it's cut it looks like then the family turn and go oh dear 
But it's actually like then you see them walking down the path and you're like, oh, oh, okay. No, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird bit of a weird moment there, but that yeah, that was so funny. But um, yeah. Once we eventually, you know, uh, Emily and Fanny and Alexander move into the giant rectory castle with the bishop and his sister and mother and creepy as fuck aunt. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. At that, the second you see the aunt, it is the greatest reveal. It's like someone. I I think it might be the mother. Like steps slowly to the side, and you just see her like. <laughs> invasion of the body snatchers reveal it's the creepiest thing and it is so amazing because it's like oh I guarantee she was not that creepy but again we're from the perspective of a child and that's his memory is this woman was a fucking monster in the corner mm. we didn't get much of her though only a little bit we got that moment she, she just kind of serves she serves no purpose to me other than window dressing Mm. In the sense of, like, she's there to help establish a mood and a tone of the creepiness and the horrible nature of this place that he's found. Like, it's just like, it, it sucks. My mother's, re- my dad's dead. My mum's remarried. I have this horrible step aunt. Like, you know, all these people treat me like that. There's a monster in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> she can't feed herself and is constantly sweaty and has pussy Was shit on her face. Man? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, her name was Elsa, so I'm assuming. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and then long shots of them in front of the barred window, probably playing into that story, uh, fairy tale that you were saying before. Yeah, that's where it gets full fairy tale for me, and like what you know, it it kind of clicks even more. So like, yep, this is this is what he's doing with this film. Mm. He's He's taking themes and elements from all of his previous work and then just kind of plonking it into this fairy tale piece. And, you know, that's where the film really clicked for me. And I was like, I am loving this. Yeah, I think so too for me. And um, that moment where the maid comes in, that festy, scabby maid comes in and starts this story. And then obviously Alexander goes with it and then... She's baiting him. Yeah, yeah, and then she uses it against him. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that, yeah, that's the thing, and it's so weird because it's like initially you get the sense that she's there as like a oh my god, it's actually an ally, and mm. then it's like oh no, she's just another horribleness, and it's almost that thing of like when Alexander eventually gets caned for telling the story, and it does the cutaway to her like reacting to it. You almost feel bad for her because, like, I got the sense that she she told on him, like, for, and, like, goaded him into doing the story and then told on him for the sense of, like, she's just fucking bored. Mm. Like, she has no interaction and she she's doing this for her own, like, I need yeah. something. And then having that cut close-up shot of her reacting to, like, oh, fuck, I didn't know it was going to go this far. Mm. Like. And I love that scene where Alexander is clearly winning. If this was a yes. battle, if this was a battle, he was winning. But and then, then, and, and I love so much as well. Edward in that scene keeps saying to him, like, "If this this is a battle, and I'm gonna beat you because I have more willpower and more spirituality in me and stuff." And it's just like, dude, you're not even winning this scene. No, like, no. And to eventually, and, and it's almost like he becomes aware of that. And to own the only way that he can actually overcome it is to actually physically dominate the child. Yeah, and. Alexander is 
very much in charge of the moment, except when he then continues the beating. Like he doesn't even cry or scream or anything, but when it starts again, he get like you realize again, like he's a little boy. Oh and yeah, so and then when you, you see realize, him later and he's all bloodied and it's just like Jesus Christ. His mum gives him a big cuddle and oh, yeah. it's awful. But even even though Edward like physically dominated Alexander and thinks that like you know in that scene he thinks he's won and he's bested him. He's lost because then, you know, he sends Alexander away, you know, and on top of caning him 11 times or however many times, mm. he then locks him away in a fucking room for days on top of that. Mm. It, and then he goes to kind of touch Fanny and she recoils away yeah. from him. And it's just like, you think you've won, but you've done more damage and lost more than you would even can even recognize by doing that. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, Edward and the um, sister, because the mum is always de- or ha- is described as the kind one or the nice one. It's like, where did these two come from? Obviously, we don't we don't get that insight, but yeah, if they're both fucked up, you kind of imagine that yeah, s- something's gone wrong. <laughs> yes, in the and past, it, and it is just that thing of like it, it's. I mean, something that Bergman's talked about in previous films as well, like you know the power of religion and faith and how that can be a dominating force. Um, kind of helping sway people's wills and establishing them, like, you know, shaping who they are as people. Um, and I wonder, like, that that's essentially what he's trying to do with Emily. And that, that shocking scene, like, that, that was the scene that broke me was when he's sitting there with her and he's just like, when you come live with me, you leave all your possessions mm. behind. You, yeah, and it's just like... Oh no. <laughs> this is not going to work. This good is place. yeah. This is going to go very badly. <laughs> mm. And it is just that thing of he he is such a dominating or, or perceives himself to be such a dominating powerful force that he needs to strip everyone bare to then bow to accommodate Him. To his way of life mm. as opposed to finding some middle ground or anything and it's just such and that's why i love that first dinner scene as well where you have emily trying to combat it and kind of go against the yeah. sister and you realize how diabolical they are trying to get their own way in that like the sister just starts crying and screaming <laughs> because someone talked back to her and it's just like oh leave now get yeah. out <laughs> yeah and I like that they address why she doesn't. Obviously, it's a different time, a different place, and she's that, in love. Yeah, and that would have been enough. But I love that she has that moment where she talks to the grandma and she says, "Well, I've actually broached this with Edward, and he I want said, a divorce." <laughs> yeah, and he said that if you do that, then I legally have rights to the children. So then you're like, "Oh, we are. This is fucked. Like we're in a bad place here." We and it makes you actually start to question well how much of the story that alexander made up is real or not yeah like is is there actually any truth into that is he seeing ghosts is yeah he's seen them before yeah is this actually is like the more we find out about edward the more you're like oh shit (laughs) yeah this this is real hmm and and again the more the more it becomes real the more it becomes a fairy tale surprisingly yeah, and the bit that got me, so obviously there's the escape. And <laughs> oh, I love that escape with her. He's running Isa. up and down the stairs. Where does he Fant- even know where they are, though? Like, yeah, it, it's great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely fantastic. And then how he just 
loses it at him and like calls him all these horrible slurs and is beating him and you're just like wow this is like you're showing your true colors here like mm. re- like it, it's in that kind of fairy tale sense of like it's fine for the true colors to be shown in front of the kids but seeing him do that to another adult mm. is really kind of shocking and it's interesting because he's very keen for money yet Previously, we're like no possessions, um, nothing like that. And it just goes to show you that he wasn't doing that for faith or religion. He was doing that for power. Yes. Yeah. And he he actually does want money and all, you know, yeah. he, he goes, what about my painting over here? How about, how much do you reckon that's worth? You know? Yeah. And, and that's, it, it just adds into that whole thing of like, well, he's only a bishop because of like... You know, the, the idea of having power, he's not actually in it. For, he uses his piousness <clears throat> and the religion as a way to demean people and, mm. and have authority over them. Mm. <clears throat> mm. But yeah, then he, but it's weird. He goes, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to steal my children or something, but he mustn't realize that they're in the chest. Because he, he lays a blanket over them and then he yeah. kind of does the perfunctory. You can look if you want to see that I'm not stealing other stuff. Like your sister, like you clearly think I'm going to because I'm Jewish. You're yeah. a horrible pe- person. Um, <laughs> but then there's the children are upstairs and he's and the um, Isaac screams. And I'm assuming Isaac screams to alert the mother to lay them out. The yeah. dummy children. I don't know. It's yeah, not really that's, explained. That's my interpretation. Yeah, it's kind of adding into that magical realism and that kind of oddness of it, especially mm. because when Isaac scream, it goes in and there's like a beautiful spotlight that kind of envelops mm. him, and it, you're just like, oh, fairy tale. Yeah, yeah, this is this is nuts. Yeah, and then they go to Isaac's. Isaac's to lay wonderful maze house with puppets and everything everywhere. See, I thought at that moment we're going to enter back into some sort of innocence and purity and joyousness and all that. And then it just went weird and I was confused again. And okay. yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, who my, was the, yeah. who's the guy living with Isaac? Uh, that is Isaac's uh, nephew, I believe. Okay. And then, so he has two nephews living with him and one is locked up because he's dangerous Yes, uh, Ismail. Ismail. Ismail and, and Aaron. Aaron. Okay. And this is what got me. So come in. We're going to look after you. We're not going to give you a bedpan. That would be, you know, whatever. And then in the middle of the night, um, Alexander leaves to go find a toilet and he gets lost. That's made very clear. I'm lost. Yeah. <laughs> and then... <laughs> and then these kids have just been through the most traumatic event ever or traumatic months months i don't know how long and then aaron decides to scare the shit out of alexander with a god puppet and then put him in ishmael's room who's you've been told don't go in there don't open that door he's dangerous oh no i'm gonna lock you in what is going on okay 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 i i got you i got i i'm because 
Because I'm the total opposite. I'm just like, I, I'm I'm switched. I get this. I okay. get what he's doing with this. Because I get it. <laughs> I so it. that's good, yeah. Um, again, like, as I've said previously, like, uh, faith is a huge uh, kind of ongoing theme with a lot of Bergman stuff. And at, at this point in time as well, like, there's... Uh, we, we've had many times throughout the film, Alexander kind of showing a lack of faith or a lack of, like, giving a shit, I guess, mm. about people's faith and God and the idea of God like the idea mm-hmm. of swearing and you know all of that like you know it, it's trivial to him yeah and I think it, like you know that's all spurred on from the loss of his father and having all of that happen and he has this wonderful ex- and that's why yeah he says God's having- a shit or something yes yes that's it exactly <laughs> and it, it's having that scene where Aaron thinks he's having a fun little joke where it's like this God puppet that he's just made like coming in and kind of scaring Alexander but Alexander having gone through what he's gone through and like, Aaron's not necessarily privy to some of the extra extrasensory, I'll say, things that we've been, we, the audience, are privy to. Like, the idea mm. that Alexander has seen ghosts and communicating with them and all of this stuff. Like, mm-hmm. whether or not that's true or not, again, we don't know. It's just, but again, from the perspective of a child. And so he legit thinks he's communicating with God and kind of is there to have it out with him, which is that wonderful thing of he's not actually able to have it out with God, so he has it out with Aaron, with his perspective of God, by saying, uh, if there is a God, he is a shit, and I'd kick him in the butt. <laughs> Which is just so wonderful. And it's just Such like, yeah, damn. Such a thing to say. Yeah. And then Aaron's response of, "This is your theory is very interesting and appears to be justified. <laughs> <laughs> it's so wonderful. I just laughed so much at that. But then, with that then comes, like, the, the idea of, like, he shows him hey, do you want to see our mummy? And it's like all the, this, we're fully entering a world of magic at this point. Yeah. And it's not necessarily magic. It's being presented, Bergman's presenting it to us as if it is real magic. Like there's a mummy and it's breathing. And then, you know, he goes in to have the experience with Ismail where it's like, who for all intents and purposes is a medium to some degree and is able Mm. to foresee stuff and kind of helps Alexander harness, I guess that. And, you know, cause he's explaining to him like what, like the visions you're having of uh, Edward and Elsa and stuff dying in a fire, like we can make that happen. Mm. And it, and then it ends up kind of coming through and all of that stuff. What, he's presenting it to us in a world of real magic as it's presented from the perspective of a child. But I think that what it's really doing for the film is it's, it's presenting to Alexander that there's more to life than what you have previously seen. That there's more going on in this world than you are yet aware of. And, and this is our way of kind of entering him into that. Like you've, you've gone from one extreme of having this nice bourgeois kind of, beautiful exorbitant family life to the most stark Dickensian orphan lifestyle almost to now you're in this weird mythical middle ground and this is the part where you're going to discover in life that there you have no idea how much more is out there Mm. like you you can't even comprehend and there's like a brief part where uh Aaron and Itzhak talk about like Aaron's telling him about Itzhak's theory like you know the multiverse essentially <laughs> how it's like you know this infinite reality is on top of each other and folding in on each like space and time is relative and it's just it's throwing all of this at this small child and he's and so he just interprets it as magic oh okay yeah Whew. That, that's, that's my deep. read at least i could be i could be totally wrong no, but it's, I, yeah I, I, I yeah viewed it as it's it's the way to express to alexander that there is more out there Mm. And and this is your kind of foray into that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I literally, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I did see that. I, I think I was just so confused at the same time. But now yeah. I see that, yeah, it's, yeah, that's good. <laughs> and I think it is, like I said, like having having experienced quite a bit of Bergman at this Bergman. point. Bergman. I think this is probably like ninth or tenth Bergman for me. Um, yeah, you sort of like, you become aware of his repeating themes, you know, stuff like faith, family, grief, be- a sense of belonging, understanding, all of that stuff. You, oh, yeah. You kind of look for it in his work because otherwise you're sitting there like, the fuck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. That was my reaction. Yeah. Is there, so obviously there's been quite a lot of Bergman in the podcast, in the Criterion collection so far, I'm guessing. Yeah, uh, so much so that I think it was last year Criterion ended up putting up a giant box booklet thing of every single film Bergman ever made. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it's called Bergman Cinema, and there's like everything he ever made, but... I think, yeah, so far we've, you know, Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries, Cries and Whispers, Autumn Sonata, Magic Flute, um, Scenes from Marriage, Smiles of a Summer Night. Like, yeah, heaps, 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 heaps. And what, where does this fall? Like, in terms of what years was, was he active, approximately? Uh, well, beautiful segue in setting this up for me, <laughs> uh, possibly by accident. This was uh, going to be his penultimate film. This was going to be his last film he ever worked on, and it essentially kind of was. Um, you know, he was active as a filmmaker from, I believe, I th- I'm pretty sure it was the early 40s through, and this mm. is now uh, 1982, mm. and he he uh, made this as an essentially a culmination of everything he's done. Like, you know, trying to incorporate aspects uh, both visually in storytelling, thematically in storytelling, character-wise, bringing in a whole bunch of actors he'd previously worked with, and just do this giant kind of magnum opus fairy tale thing as his final film. Mm-hmm. Um, he ended up writing and directing a few kind of TV things, and then I believe he worked on one other film after this. Um, but but yeah, this is this is a, essentially meant to be his swan song. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm sad that you've got me on this podcast in a way because I, I haven't seen those other films to you know pick out moments from his previous films but yeah he's he's an it's an interesting journey especially the way we went we've gone about it previously like by going through chronologically with the spine numbers like i mean first we were introduced to the seventh seal which is one that i'm desperate to actually revisit because uh you know i think it was episode 11 or something for us and we're in you know getting up to 300 almost now yeah (laughs) and and i think it was like we didn't know what the fuck we were doing and so I really, that's when I really actually want to go back and reappraise and re do a request on and mm. re look at. But then after that, we got thrown into stuff like Cries and Whispers, and which is about a young woman dying of cancer and the emotional blowout between her and her sisters. And so it's like two hours of just screaming and crying. And it's just like, whoa. Yeah. What are we? Yeah, it's kind of thrown into the deep end of his emotional stuff. Yeah. And then slowly, as we got into stuff like Wild Strawberries, where it's about an old man going on a road trip and revisiting points in his life and reminiscing about the life that he had, and you're like, oh, this is... Okay, I get, I get where, we're do- where we're going now. I get some of this stuff. Oh, shit, and there's also all the, the like, through a glass darkly and the silence and, like, yeah, all, all of his, like... Yeah, there's heaps there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this was kind of a moment for him to... Because he would have been, if he, you said he was born in... 1918, I think. 
Yeah, so 1982, he's... He's in his 70s at this point. Yes. uh, He only passed away in 2007, I want to say, though. So he had a... a, Yeah, good innings. Um, (laughs) But, um, Mm. yeah, this for me, I... The best way I could describe it to someone would be like, this is Bergman's Grand Budapest Hotel. Hmm. In that it's really fucking good, and it's it is that kind of evolution and that thing he has been building towards, and it incorporates all of these elements that he's dealt with previously, all into this one giant kind of magnum opus mm. piece. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's my favorite. I'm, I'm kind of unsure where I'd place this in, in Bergman for me, but it is, I, you know, when you, when you see something is, you know, over three hours long and, you know, you've got to sit and analyze and things, you you can sometimes get a little bit of, oh God, here we go. (laughs) But I was just by, by like the hour mark, like after, once it really starts cooking and it goes into that rural Dickensian thing, I was enthralled. I could not look away from the screen. Yeah. He, he just kind of, he grabs you and just kind of, and then even when it gets into that later part, like I'm wondering if when it got into that, you know, with back at Isaac's house and all that magical realism stuff, even though you were like, the fuck is going on? Yeah. Were, were you still just like, I can't look away though? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it, it didn't lose your interest, it, but it, it confounded it you a little bit. It didn't lose my interest, no, not at all once through. And I, I love period films anything to do with that and it really not knowing Bergman or where this was going I had a very different picture in my mind I mm. thought we were going to be like Gosford Park at the beginning oh, okay yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. And I you, loved you, you're, you're waiting for Stephen Fry to show <laughs> yeah. up as a bumbling detective yeah <laughs> and I love how surreal I love surrealism and I love how surreal it got mm. um yeah I just I, I struggled with it but yeah. Hmm. Did, did talking it through and, and discussing it kind yeah. of help, help a little Abs- bit? Absolutely, absolutely. That's, that's what I find with every Bergman film is, like, it, it, it demands to be talked about. Otherwise, and in and discussing it with friends and things makes you have a deeper understanding of what, what the fuck... you got to talk <laughs> it through. <laughs> yeah, and I guess, yeah, you've got the knowledge because you've... you've explored his other films so mm. it does good. it make it does it make you interested to go back and watch some of his other stuff now yeah absolutely mm. absolutely he's a he's a crazy guy <laughs> he's, a, he's, he's an interesting interesting dude yeah um was there anything we we missed we we haven't talked about again this is like you know we've kind of done our best to kind of tackle a very sprawling three hour plus tale of a year in the life of these people but like yeah no i yeah all my notes have been ticked off I think um, I'm ready for some trivia. All righty. So as uh, previously teased with the Criterion Box uh, synopsis, the film was nominated for six Academy Awards, uh, including screenplay uh, written directly for the screen and best director for Bergman. Uh, I'm going to stop you there. So it won Academy Awards. Academy Awards are not for television shows. So this cut, this theatrical version won Academy Awards. Okay. Re- it is a similar thing to what happened with Scenes from a Marriage in terms of its release. It it was initially released as the theatrical version, and then the expanded TV version was released a year later on Swedish television. Ah, okay. As, as like, the episodic version. But um, So this came out uh, in 1982, and this is the 1984 Academy Award. So it took a while for it to kind of 
go and get released in this form. And yeah, mm, okay. Um, yeah, so the, the theatrical film version was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Screenplay written directly for the screen, Best Director for Bergman, and it won four, uh, including uh, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Cinematography, and Best Foreign Language Film. Yeah. Uh, I also found it interesting that uh, it is uh, one of three films now, to, uh, non-English language films, to win four Academy Awards. The others yeah. being uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Parasite. Yeah. Yeah. Timely. Uh, it also won the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Film, and Bergman was nominated for Best Director. Uh, Sven Nyqvist uh, won the BAFTA for Best Cinematography. Uh, the film was also nominated for Best Costume Design and Best Foreign Language Film. The DGA nominated Bergman for Best Director. The National Board of Review named it the Best Foreign Language Film of the Year. Carhe du Cinema listed it as the 10th Best Film of the Year. And it was awarded the Fipresky Prize at the 1983 Venice Film Festival. And as you would expect, it is included on Roger Ebert's list of great movies. So, mm. very loved. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of bummed. It, it, this is one that kind of fluctuates, like, maybe once a week. It'll be in the IMDb Top 250. It kind of hovers between the, like, 240 to not on the list range quite often. And uh, as of date of recording, it is not on that list, but this could I, change tomorrow. I'd imagine it's, um, unless you're into film or, or of a certain age, it's potentially a, a forgotten film otherwise. It's in it is a very culture. cinephile film, yeah. Although there is a surprising amount of Bergman on that IMDb list, so, mm-hmm. um, and I think yeah, this <laughs> it, it's less heady than a lot of his other stuff. I think, which is probably why snobs are just like, Meh, it's fine, but it's no Virgin Spring. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's no, it's no Persona. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the way, you, you, would, you would fucking love Persona, by the way. Ooh, okay. we'll, we'll get to that one eventually. Um, uh, so back to trivia. Uh, Bergman's first draft of the script uh, was completed in 1979, and it consisted of about 1,000 handwritten pages. Oh, my God. Uh, the script was written in three months, but pre-production for the film took over a year. Yeah. For planning and execution. Absolutely. Uh, at the time, it was the largest film ever made in Sweden with uh, about 60 speaking parts and about 1,200 extras. And it was the most expensive with a budget of about $6 million. I'm guessing that he, in Sweden, by that time, he was very well respected. Um, I believe he'd already um, won... He'd been nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards previous to this, uh, including with Cries and Whisper, he was nominated for Best Picture and Best Director, even. Yeah. Um, And he'd won... Two of his films had won Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars previously, so he was... Big. He was he was in Mar Bergman by that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, uh, he wanted to kick off the six month long shoot with uh, something light and happy. So the first scene that was shot was the wild pillow fight with the kids. Ah, yeah. And apparently, uh, from that point, like all of the film was shot in chronological order. So they, the first things that were shot were all that Christmas dinner stuff, and then just as it went through chronologically, and Do you- um, sorry. Do you think that's he does that on purpose? Very much so, because I'm going to jump a little bit ahead of my trivia. Um, to encourage a more natural performance from young actor, uh, from the young lead actor playing Alexander, his name was Bertel Gouve, um, he specifically didn't tell him what the film was about or what was going to happen next. He just kind of let it unfold as if a life would for this kid. 
oh. kind of bring out a natural performance. Uh, coincidentally, um, Bertolt Gouve, who played Alexander, decided not to pursue a career in acting. <laughs> yeah. And he is now actually a doctor of economics. Oh, good on yeah. him. Uh, there are some other interesting casting things. Uh, Liv Ullman was originally offered the role of Emily, uh, but she turned it down. Uh, Bergman was very upset and told Ullman that she had lost her birthright. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> uh, Ed and Edvard was originally written for Max von Sydow as well to play her, who was also a very a big Bergman regular before. But by this point in time, he'd already gone off and was, you know, the exorcist. <laughs> you know, he'd, he'd gone off to other stuff. And um, yeah, so he, I believe he was unavailable. And so uh, Swedish song and dance man Jan Malmström. <laughs> got the role instead and because it, uh, he'd kind of asked Bergman like why the hell are you casting me I'm like a happy-go-lucky song and dance musical guy and Bergman's response was well I sense some hidden dark and evil inside you <laughs> you have it you have it I have it we all have it <laughs> yeah um there's, it's now actually been published, actually, uh, Bergman's work diary. It was released in 2006, um, kind of his diary during the making of this film, and he had uh, intense doubts about his ability to, to successfully finish the large undertaking that the film was. Uh, there, he apparently as well had constant bouts of hypochondria, and at one point uh, believed that he had both testicular and stomach cancer. Uh, yep. <laughs> So he just was getting so worked up and just blah, 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 that he kind of went insane a little bit. Um, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, him and uh, cinematographer Sven Nikvist, who they are amazing, their work together, they had a big falling out while shooting this um, since uh, Nick, uh, Nikvist wasn't allowed to attend his ex-wife's funeral because Bergman was like, no, we're shooting that day. Ah, oh, that's yeah. nice. <laughs> well, you're like, ooh, that's rough. Yeah. Uh, on a slightly more fun note and probably why there is like, you know, this film is three hours, ten minutes, there's a five-and-a-half-hour version. Apparently, there was uh, 24 hours worth of material filmed. Jesus. Yeah. These poor actors. <laughs> well, they're getting paid. It's fine. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they knew what they were signing up for. <laughs> uh, but with that, we'll move on to the actual Criterion edition itself. Uh, the film is still available from Criterion as a five-disc DVD or a three-disc Blu-ray. It's also available up on the Criterion channel streaming service. And it comes with the special features of a, um, I should mention as well, the box set includes television ver uh, version, theatrical version, as well as the making of Fanny and Alexander, uh, which is a documentary made by Bergman himself. Uh, Bergman, and then special features are Bergman bids farewell to film, a conversation between Bergman and film critic Nils Peter Sundgren, uh, recorded for Swedish television in 1984. Audio commentary on the theatrical film version by film scholar Peter Cowie, a Bergman tapestry, a documentary featuring interviews with cast and crew, and then on the DVD edition you have rare introductions by Bergman to 11 of his films, as well as a selection of Bergman trailers, uh, rare um, still galleries, costume sketches and footage of models used from the film set, theatrical trailer, as well as massive booklet and essays that Criterion always do. So a very stacked edition. Nice. Yeah. But I guess unless you got anything else, uh, congratulations on your first Bergman. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, with that, uh, I guess it's time to talk about what our next film is. We're, we're going to dive back into some Robert Altman with 1993's Shortcuts. Ooh. 
Mm, Am I on that one? Uh, if you want to be. Sure. <laughs> I, I, I really enjoy Shortcuts. It's it's kind of, a again, another magnum opusy kind of film from Robert Altman this time. Cool. But, uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, as usual, if you have any comments or queries, you can send us an email at thecriterionquest at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at CriterionQuest. Uh, otherwise, uh, shameless shout-out for our Patreon page. Yeah. <laughs> If, if you want to hear Lee and I, uh, by the time this is out, we're, we're deep into our October spooky commentaries. So, yes. Uh, We've uh, started with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the time this episode's out, it uh, will probably be almost time for our Scream commentary mm. to be coming out. So if you're interested in that, head on over to patreon.com slash thecriterionquest. I'll put a link in the episode description and whatnot. But uh, if you feel like uh, helping us keep the lights on and, you know, help keep this crazy show running uh, it'd be greatly appreciated but otherwise again thanks for listening everybody uh for this week's episode i'm chris i'm lee we'll see you next time see ya